This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What's that? Uh, taxi driver? Ah, yeah, cool. And, uh, shower head, big knife. Is that Psycho? Okay. Dancing lady. Are, are those wolves? Dances with wolves? They kind of look more like foxes. Or, or a hedgehog. Okay, what's this? Uh, a radio, another wolf slash fox, and lots of people. Radio fox group? Radio wolf bunch? Radio wolf gang? Radio Wolfgang emoji title, I love it. Smiley love heart eyes, winky kiss. Hello, this is Reading with the Yeah, we're back on air. The goes down, but we don't care. We're mobile now. We're everywhere. Yeah, Radio Wolfgang is back on air. Do you know what I hear? footsteps up the stairs. No hovercraft out the window and no clickety-click of little spiders. Do you know why I can't hear any of those things, Danny? Because right now, the precogs can't see a thing. Now, the question is, do you know with a, for 100% that you're going to wake up tomorrow or you can be 100% sure that the country's going to be there? Yeah, the answer is no. So 100% is a, that's a tough number. The difficulty with prediction is even if we can predict who will offend, that doesn't tell us what to do about it because it doesn't tell us anything about what the relationship is between that predictive factor and the actual outcome. In fact, there may be no relationship. It may be that that predictor is just a marker for another factor that we're missing out on. Today we saw the first murder in the six years of the pre-crime experiment. Sadly enough, this failure was human. The protection team simply didn't get there in time to stop the murder. But the murder itself happened exactly as the precogs predicted it would. What you have to begin with is try and look at what people assume free will is and, and really question that. Because otherwise you end up with a belief in free will as a kind of magic. And then lo and behold, People will come along and say it doesn't exist, does it? I'm not surprised it doesn't exist, it's magic. I don't think anybody promises perfect prediction. We're not those precogs in the movie. Uh, we can count on computers and data and algorithms. But we can certainly do better than when predictions are made from craft lore or clinical expertise.
Your brain's involved in every single act and every single thought that you have. So the concept of free-floating will, as if it's not shaped by biology and shaped by the society, seems to me to be a non-starter which the philosophers get their knickers in a twist about. Speaking of knickers in a twist, welcome to Science-ish. I'm joined as ever by Dr Michael Brooks. Hello. There he is, a trademark hello from Brooksy. Have you seen the film that we're discussing today, which is Minority Report? Yes, I have seen it. How yes. many times? I've seen it three times now. I've seen it four times. Oh, God. I really like Always. this film. Yeah, no, it's very good. It is very good. It, it, I watched it again last week, and it sort of felt a bit dated. You know, no, it's of its I... time. You know, it's, it's, it's 2002, so... But given that, I think yeah. it stands the, the test of time pretty well, actually. Yeah. But it wouldn't do that much different if you were making it now. No, you might beef up some of the action a bit. The, 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 there's a couple of scenes, like, you know the jetpack scene? Where oh, you're a director around. now, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Jack, the, the, Jack the, of all The jetpack scene where he's, like, sort of dragging him against the... Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I love that. <laughs> but it's, what it, more do you want? But now, if you did it now in the age of Marvel comics and all those kind of action sequences, it would be much bigger, much kind of more yeah, dramatic. But, no, no. Bigger, yes. More dramatic, no. Because the problem with those Marvel films is that you can't work out what the fuck's going on. There's too much happening. It's too loud. It's too long. I don't like that. I See, I think I've got used to that, and everything else feels a bit underwhelming now. No, stop it. All right. I need Just stop it. Go back to basics with my, with yeah, my movie Yeah, a minority report watching. is not basics. Anyway, the broad plot of the film is that you have these three mutated humans, precogs. How they're mutated is not entirely clear, but they are able to predict the future, specifically murders. And then you have a a team of police officers led by Tom Cruise, John Anderton, who then go off uh, and prevent the crime from being committed. And then they... They kind of keep them in that really creepy... I guess it's like a prison. They sort of put that headset on and then store them. They're sleeping. Sorry. Tell me how all this works. The photon milk acts as both a nutrient supply and a liquid conductor. It enhances the images that each of them receive. We call the female Agatha. The twins are Arthur and Dash. We scan by way of optical tomography... White light pinpoints pulse along the entire length of the headgear and are reread after absorption to their brain tissue. In other words, we see what they see. So the film is set in 2054, and this sort of pre-crime division had been introduced six years before that, and the the murder rate had dropped to zero as being in its trial in Washington. Yeah, Washington. that's right, in, um, in District of Columbia, wasn't yeah, it? they're about to roll it out nationally. But, oh dear, <laughs> <laughs> what's Colin Farrell here for? <laughs> Colin Farrell is going to check that it's all sort of in, in working order. And uh, lo and behold, it might not be. And I don't think you can really say much more than that without giving away... <laughs> without giving away the entire film. Yeah, yeah I think yeah, I've, I've yeah, done well about done. 75% yeah, of it. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, probably wor- it's probably worth watching the last half hour now. Yeah, absolutely. So our first question then, obviously we don't have precogs yet, but our first question is going to be, can we predict a criminal? And we asked that question first to Professor Jim Fallon, who's a neuroscientist from the University of California. Well, yes, uh, probably with X amount of uh, probability, 
that you could say, yeah, this per- this is somebody who's going to commit a crime. Like, you know, if somebody's a full psychopath and they have been put away, they're put in prison, let's say, and then they get out, the chances are, are very good that within a month they're going to keep doing the same thing. That is, they will do it over and over again. Now, they, you probably you can't predict when they're going to do it. That's, that's a more difficult thing. It's not fair to the child to beat him up because it was his parents. Uh, they didn't bring him up properly. And so then they say, well, punish the parents. Well, the parents say, excuse me, but I'm, our parents were neurotic too. And they brought us up badly, so we couldn't help what we did. And so since the grandparents are dead, we can't get at them. And in any case, supposing we could, uh, we would pass the whole blame back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And they say, so they started all this mess. There are certain groups of genes or forms of the genes called alleles. You know, you, you inherit one allele of a gene from your mother and you inherit the other allele uh, from your father. And if you get a full dose of the same alleles from both parents, you know, for example, like aggressiveness, there are genes that are associated with uh, what are called monoamine neurotransmitters, the transmitters in the brain that regulate the emotional and really part of the cognitive brain. And these monoamines are things like dopamine, which is everybody's heard of, and serotonin, genes that control the metabolism in the brain of those monoamine neurotransmitters are associated with aggression and violence, okay, certain forms of it. So if you inherit one form, a bunch of one form of these set of genes, you will naturally be very aggressive. It doesn't make you a criminal, however, or violent. It may express itself as somebody who's so obnoxiously competitive. You know, this is one of the great gamblers that, that may be, do anything to win, right? And that's not criminal. Uh, but it's a, it can be a pain in the ass. I am obnoxiously competitive. I don't see the point in playing games unless you're going to try and win. Oh, see, that's not me at all. I really couldn't give a toss whether I win or not in the end. I f- see, I find that quite infuriating. I don't yeah. want to play against someone who isn't fussed whether they win or lose. Like, is that because it Cause takes away pointless. your glory? You want to crush people? Yeah. And if yeah. I'm not crushed after you beat me, does that ruin it for you? Well, it certainly takes the edge off, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so what um, Professor Jim is saying there is that there are genes that make someone more likely to commit a crime. Is that right? So the, there's a gene that, that's called the Maawa gene, or M-O-M... Oh, I beg your pardon? M-A-O-A, which stands for monoamine oxidase A. And this has been dubbed the warrior gene. And if you have it, supposedly, you're more likely to be violent and to be sort of aggressive, to find yourself, you know, if you're frustrated, lashing out, that kind of thing. But it's more complicated than that, of course, because genetics is never about one gene. It's never about even just one you know, small subset of genes. There's, there's a whole sort of mixture of genes that work An together. interplay of genes, In- Interplay, very yeah. nicely put, yes. And so it's, it's, it's not that you have the warrior gene, therefore you will be a pain in the ass. But actually, if you have the warrior gene, you're slightly more predisposed to violent behavior in certain circumstances. If something arises, then yes, you're likely to react differently to somebody who doesn't have the gene. Genetics is a very dangerous thing to, to sort of be dealing with when you're talking about criminal behaviours mm. because, you know, you end up sort of pigeonholing people and actually it's just so much more complicated than, you know, this, this is in your DNA. We also have a go at pigeonholing people with, you know, sort of labelling them as... as psychopaths or, or or what have you how reliable are those kind of measures 
So, you know, we have this thing called the psychopath test, or it's not officially called the psychopath test. It's, it's given a, a fancier name than that. But the idea is that you can sort of isolate what kind of behaviours or how you will react to certain things. And, and you sort of go through this checklist. And then at the end of it, you get a score. And if you get above a certain amount, then you're a psychopath and you're labelled. But... I think it's a lot more complicated than that. And there are psychopaths who cope very well with normal society and just are probably a bit like you, you know, you know driven to win, do a few things that, that may be slightly outside of social convention, such as, you know, fist pumps and, you know, when you win at Scrabble I'm or whatever. I'm glad you said fist pumps. <laughs> <laughs> the, the stuff that we've looked at so far, I guess, is nature. We've not really looked at, at nurture at all. We're saying, you know, people's genes and kind of how their brains are structured and nurture and the, the relationship between, you know, genes and your environment yeah. must be massive, huge. Here. Yeah, yeah, it's a massive thing. Um, we spoke about the nurture uh, aspect to the criminologist Dr Kyle Triber from the University of Cambridge. There tends to be a divide between people who think it's more about the individual, so focus on, on individual factors that would relate to someone's criminality, so trying to explain why people are offenders, versus the side that looks at environments and tries to understand why crime happens in certain places, so looking at, at how environments actually move people to offend. So there's a real lack of integration there, and that's one thing as well that my research is trying to do is bring the two together, the person and the environment, and look at how they actually interact um, when it comes to actual, again, causation of crime. I came into criminology from neuroscience, so I was very much at that time focused on the brain and cognition and decision-making, and these are still the areas I'm, I'm particularly interested in. But I came into criminology, which is actually uh, at present and certainly 10, 15 years ago when I entered it, very sociological, um, certainly in the UK. I was then quite surprised to find that there wasn't a lot of discussion, or at least as much as I expected, in relation to abnormal psychology um, and the individual level factors. In fact, there was a lot more interest in the social. And I ended up getting involved in a study that was particularly trying to better study social environments, but it had an element um, looking at individuals and how they interact with those environments. And that's actually what I've been working on for the last uh, 12 years. And what we're finding from that is that it's not just about having certain characteristics as an individual, and it's not just about being in certain kinds of settings, but it's about the combination of the two. And certain characteristics, when they are interacting with certain features, um, individual characteristics with environmental characteristics, then you get um, this interaction that leads an individual to see crime as something in that setting under those circumstances they want to do, and then to potentially choose to do that. So what are some of these environmental factors then, Michael? So if you are brought up in a household where there's a lot of drug use, alcohol abuse, physical and emotional abuse, then, then that will trigger certain behaviours that you're kind of predisposed to genetically. So if you were brought up in a lovely, nice, you know, easygoing environment, you could have all these genes and the, or the kind of the predispositions and not Ever, but they'd never be triggered. Yeah, they'd never sort of be triggered. So, so it's about that kind of trigger. So David Eagleman has this really great thing where he says, if you were a carrier of a particular set of genes, the probability that you will commit a violent crime is four times as high 
as it would be if you lacked those genes. You're three times as likely to commit robbery, eight times as likely to be arrested for murder, and 13 times as likely to be arrested for a sexual offence. And the overwhelming majority of prisoners in the penal system carry these genes, and they're basically summarised as a Y chromosome in that you're a bloke. You know, you could argue the male is obviously predisposed to criminal behaviour, but actually, you know, what it is is the kind of environment and social pressures and everything else that that cause this to sort of be expressed as as criminal behaviour. So while we go around looking for the kinds of people that might commit, you know, murder, it's it's not going to be any particular type. It's probably going to be more determined by the sort of situation they're in. No doubt the precogs have already seen this. No doubt. You see the dilemma, don't you? If you don't kill me, precogs were wrong and pre-crime is over. If you do kill me, you go away. But it proves the system works. Precogs were right. going to do now? What's it worth? Just one more murder. There are three theories of, of what causes criminals. One is strain theory, which is that you know, you're stressed, you don't think about the consequences effectively, and you just engage in, in some criminal activity. Then there's social learning, which is you just learn it from people around you. It's the social norm that you're brought up in where people are engaging in criminal activities, and so you're likely to kind of see that as just normal behaviour. And then there's the control theory, which is my favourite, which says that we're all desperate to be criminals. We just know that we won't get away with it. So, you you know, you have this kind of self-control that stops you taking the thing that you want because you think, actually, I'm going to get caught out and, uh, you know, it'll ruin my life, I'll go to prison or whatever, so I won't do it. But everything in you actually wants to do it. Do you think that's uh, true? It's difficult because you're having to strip away all kind of societal norms to work that out, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Because it's like left to your own devices where a society won't punish you or reprimand you or think ill of you for committing something that we would currently describe as a crime. Yeah. Would I commit the crime? But as soon as you get rid of all that stuff, it's no longer a crime, is it? The thing that you have to get rid of is empathy for the victim, isn't it? Which is where we come back round to psychopaths. Mm. And so that whole psychopathy thing is about not having any empathy. And that's what enables psychopaths to just do whatever it is they want to do. And that's, that's actually a really kind of advantageous position to be in. A friend of mine, Dr. Kevin Dutton at Oxford University, has written a book, actually, called The Good Psychopath's Guide to Success, which is about, you know, if you could sort of harness your inner psychopath, lose that empathy, lose that worry about, you know, what people might think of you. In the business world in particular, it's, it's very, very kind of advantageous to have that. It's quite um, a, a well-known sort of observation that big businesses behave like psychopaths isn't yeah it? yeah and mm. of course the people who run big businesses as well are you know they're known as corporate psychopaths their success is predicated on them just screwing other people over and not really worrying about it but the other problem is you can't just turn on being a psychopath because brain studies that have been done show that actually they have differently structured brains so if you're a psychopath your anterior rostral prefrontal cortex I was just about to say that is slightly you know reduced in the gray matter that it has so so you know there are physical differences in the brain of a psychopath so i can't just say oh today i think i'll just be ruthless and unempathetic you know i just don't have it in me is well so you say but then that's exactly what psychopaths <laughs> claim um and, and, and is that a hundred percent reliable then that if you have a 
that bit that you just said is slightly underdeveloped. It, it's I mean, it's been identified as a trait in you know, a significant proportion of, of people who are psychopaths. I mean, these things are, again, never 100%. Mm. And MRI studies, which this was, can be problematic as well. There was somebody did a, a study in 2011 of a dead salmon. They put a dead salmon in an MRI machine mm-hmm. and managed to show that the salmon was responding because they, they kind of basically, all the statistical analysis that you do in order to process a, an MRI scan, you can actually prove that a dead salmon is thinking. Imagine being the person who sort of gets home from work and says, I had a good day today. I proved that a dead salmon was thinking <laughs> in an MRI machine. I mean, your wife isn't going to be impressed. No, but, husband... but you did bring home fish for tea and you, you paid for yeah, it but with it's your thinking. government grant. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to eat the fish if I think it's thinking. <laughs> Feels cruel. So, so we can work out who's more likely to be a criminal. Yeah, that's what we can. Yeah, do. and sadly, but it, we can't yeah. go around locking those people up. No, no, yet. No. What about past behaviours? Presumably, they're quite a good indicator. If you can analyse it properly, and you can't, you know, you can't do it just blithely. Oh, he committed an offence in the past, so he'll commit it again. But there's certain patterns of behaviour that allow you, and you know, and computer algorithms have been written to do this, to sort of take all of the factors involved about re-offending and uh, make predictions of who will re-offend and who won't. I'll tell you who knows much more about this than you do. (laughs) That's Richard Burke, who is a professor of criminology and statistics at the University of Pennsylvania. I guess as a good first approximation, um, it's actuarial, so it's as if you're trying to figure out what to charge somebody for life insurance. So you have, from past experience information on how long people live as a function of their age and their gender and their lifestyle and you set their premiums accordingly and that actuarial approach transports really well to criminal justice settings where you do the same thing you look at different kinds of people see how they've behaved in the past and use that information to project how people you have not seen the outcome for yet are going to do victims are pronounced here killers here Beyond that, the date of the crime, all we have to run on are the images that they produce. You need to know about an individual's prior record and the kinds of crimes they've been convicted of. You need to know their age, you need to know their gender. Uh, You need to know the age at which they were first charged as an adult. So in the United States, at least somebody who's 17 or 18, well, 18 for sure, but 16 or 17, may commit a crime that's so serious that decide to charge him as if he were an adult. And then you also need to look at the pattern of crime in the most recent set of events so that somebody who, let's say, has been convicted of a robbery may have committed five or six robberies within the previous six months, that's a high-risk person, or maybe they hadn't committed a robbery for 10 years, that would more likely be a low-risk person. When the precogs declare a victim and a killer, their name is embedded in the grain of wood. Since each piece is unique, the shape and grain is unique. The shape and grain is impossible to forge. I'm sure you all understand the legalistic drawback to pre-crime methodology. Here we go again. Look, I'm not with the ACLU on this, Jeff. But let's not kid ourselves. We are arresting individuals who have broken no law. But they will. The commission of the crime itself is absolute metaphysics. The precogs see the future, and they're never wrong. But it's not the future if you stop it. Isn't that a fundamental paradox? Yes, it is. You're talking about predetermination, which happens all the time. When we do our forecasting, we commonly distinguish between crimes of violence versus property crimes. And those distinctions uh, can be made quite accurately. So we don't just predict whether someone 
is going to reoffend, we repredict whether they're going to reoffend with a violent crime. Uh, in terms of location, that's also pretty easy up to a point. People tend to commit crimes against people like themselves. And people like themselves tend to live in the same neighborhoods, often in the same several blocks. So it's a pretty good bet that if you have an individual who's going to commit a violent crime within, let's say, the next three months, it's also a pretty good bet they're going to commit it within, let's say, a four or five block area. Chief, we got a problem with our location. no longer there. Time frame? 13 minutes. I'm checking with the papers ahead of Ford to see if the neighbors knew where they went. Check all relations. Checking neighbors and relations. In terms of timing, we know that most of the recidivism that occurs, occurs pretty soon after release from prison, within a matter of months. We haven't yet looked at whether we can be more precise about when those offenses are going to occur, but uh, I suspect we can do that better as time goes on. I mean, he's saying that quite casually. Like, no, oh, yeah, I think we'll be able to narrow it down, given a bit more time. That's amazing, isn't it? The amazing thing for me is that he can do now much better than human intuition. So they pitted his machine against a load of judges, and uh, his machine did better in predicting reoffending than than the judges would. But, you know, I don't want to be all reductionist about it, but, you know, you can take all those factors and... and if you were given all of the information, you'd probably make a pretty good estimate of who was going to reoffend and who wouldn't. So it's amazing that we've got the technology to kind of put all this together. But now that we've got all that information, you know, people are not that unpredictable. But what he's, he's talking about is kind of gradually focusing in on the kind of thing that is happening in minority. Yeah, reform. exactly. He's going, yeah. Well, yeah. well, we'll be able to know probably to the block where the crime's going to happen. Yeah. And within a few days... I mean, that's extraordinary. I mean, I, I have to admit that the idea of knowing when it's going to happen. But he's also said he's a little bit worried about the sort of minority report scenario where people just start to not, not question the technology and just take it on. And it's like, yeah, the computer says it's going to be a crime here at two o'clock tomorrow afternoon. You better be here. And, you know, will we start to just sort of rely on that completely? And then anybody hanging around at two o'clock in the afternoon at that particular place is just going to be scooped up and arrested. It's a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah. I quite like it. You're, you're quite happy with that future? I don't know if I'm necessarily happy, but if it's an improvement on... You know, at the minute, we don't have you know, law enforcement people. They're just sort of randomly distributed, aren't they? But if you could <laughs> yeah. give them a little heads up where you go, do you know what? I might have a little look over here. Yeah. On Tuesday. But interestingly, I mean, that is happening with various sort of authorities around the world. So Essex police, they had a computer that would tell them where burglaries were more likely to happen and what kind of times of day and whether it was at weekends and stuff like that. So they... they and they Wow, put, I mean, I think I could probably have a guess at that. <laughs> so they put more officers on the scene. And uh, I think they claimed like a 9.8% drop in, in burglaries. But you could probably mm. achieve that by just putting something in the local paper about you've got this algorithm about where burglaries are going to happen. Yeah. You know, and, and the burglars can talk amongst themselves and say, do you know what, we better not. You know, yeah. We better lay low for six months, really. It's quite a good idea, that. Well, and that's the situation in the film, isn't it? That crime just disappeared because yeah. everyone knew that you wouldn't get away with it. And I think you could set that up. You could so do that you without do having any working setup. technology. Yeah. yeah. Look at me. Look at me. Positive for Howard Marks. Mr. Marks. By mandate of the District of Columbia Pre-Crime Division, 
I'm placing you under arrest for the future murder of Sarah Marks and Donald Dubin. It was take place today, April 22nd. It's 0800 hours, four minutes. No, I didn't do anything. Sarah! Give the man his hand. Oh, God. You put the halo on me! We aren't that close to that. But but if we could pre-predict crimes and therefore pre-convict someone, should we? Uh, so that's our second question, which we put to neuroscientist Professor Stephen Rose and first, Dr Carl Treiber again. There's a couple of, of things I think that we need to be thinking about um, when it comes to what our intentions are when it comes to, say, pre-conviction. So are we trying to prevent crime or are we actually trying to punish people for crimes that they haven't committed? I think the latter should be fairly obvious, that, that we shouldn't be punishing people for things they haven't done. So then we're looking at crime prevention. But if you're able to prevent the crime, then the person hasn't committed the crime. <laughs> so then you may be thinking about, OK, how do we prevent future crime? Uh, I, would, I would say that the way of doing that is not to convict somebody or, as in minority reports, to lock them away. Because, again, it's about an interaction between people in certain kinds of contexts. Who's the victim? I've never heard of him. But I'm supposed to kill him in less than 36 hours. I think the issue of prediction on the basis of neuroscience or genetics is very dangerous. It's also very dangerous to go down the line in which you convict someone for a crime they haven't yet done, that is thought crime. Um, Thought crime was a key feature of the way that the political powers of the party um, kept power in George Orwell's 1984, for example. The idea that our thoughts would be subject to surveillance and subject to control seems to me the ultimate frontier where human freedom needs to exist. So that does raise a lot of problems. It raises a problem about what about people who are clearly um, have psychopathic tendencies but haven't yet, or paedophilic tendencies, but haven't yet committed a crime. Supposing someone has been convicted of a paedophilic crime, they've served a sentence, they're now released. Okay, so what should those people do? Should they be free to move in the community or not? In one argument, they've done the crime, they've done the sentence, they should be free to move. The other argument is that they are still potentially a danger to a community because they may now commit the same crimes again and therefore they should be under police surveillance. And We know that's the case with people on the sex offenders register. Again, there's got to be a pragmatic route through all of this um, and it's a route which should rely more on common sense then it should rely specifically on neuroscience or genetics. Why'd you catch that? Because it was going to fall. You're certain? Yeah, but it didn't fall. You caught it. The fact that you prevented it from happening doesn't change the fact that it was going to happen. You ever get any false positives? Someone intends to kill his boss or his wife, but they never go through with it. How do the precogs tell the difference? Precogs don't see what you intend to do. Only what you will do. So what is the pragmatic route then? First of all, you have to you have to say that crime prevention is probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But then it's how far you want to take that, isn't it? And how far how much yeah. you want to profile people. Yeah. Which is what this is all about. Yeah, I mean you don't want to be really predicting somebody will offend so we'll sweep them off the streets 
But, you know, in our laws, we have intention, don't we? So we have mm-hmm. the intent to commit a certain offence is, is an offence in itself. And, you know, we talk about thought crime. Well, you know, people don't keep their thoughts to themselves anymore now that we've got Twitter and Facebook. And so you get people who just put their thoughts out there and, you know, and will get arrested for that as well. So you know, it's sort of expression of intent, expression of disagreeable points of view have become crimes now. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. What Professor Stephen was saying is right as well. It's kind of about common sense because I remember that um, guy who on Twitter said he was so furious that his plane was late. And he said, you know, where's the effect of I'm furious, I'm going to bomb this. Oh, yeah, the Robin Hood airport. Yeah, Yeah, Robin Hood airport. And common sense tells you this guy is not going to bomb the airport. Yeah. You know that he isn't going to. And you know that he has no genuine intent to do it. Yeah. But still, he was punished. Yeah. And that seems totally unreasonable. That, that feels like but this is definitely not the pragmatic. This is a legislative issue, isn't it? This mm. is about the society that we've created. Mm. So if you create a society of paranoia, then all of these kind of thoughts and intents, thought crimes, do take on that kind of mantle of just being the crime in themselves. And then you can say, you know, we've got rid of crime. Actually, all you've done is sort of move the barrier a little bit, haven't you? You've sort of lowered the barrier to what's a crime. But, you know, it's interesting. So... Um, what Stephen Rose was saying was, let's not be dictated to by neuroscience. But that's actually already happening. You know, it's certainly in the courts in, in America. Neuroscientists are being called to the witness stand to say, oh, you know, it's not my client's fault because his brain made him do it or his genes made him do it. And how's that going down? It's very controversial. And there are some neuroscientists who are saying we shouldn't get involved with this at all. But it, it's Is- also a valid point. You know, there was, there was a guy who became a paedophile because he had a brain tumour. And when that brain tumour was cut out, his sexuality returned to normal, what mm. we can you know consider normal. And then it regrew, and he became uh, paedophilic again. You know, and it's it's kind of like you can't separate out biology from personality from criminality in some ways. But also, where you draw the line, because if you sort of go, well, I can't be accountable for my actions because I have these genes. I've been saddled with these genes. Not my choice, yeah. and and you know, sort of series of environmental factors that again I didn't really have any choice in. Therefore, anything I do is just a product of that, and I personally have no responsibility. It doesn't work, does no, it? No, it doesn't because work, it, and, and we can't function as a society like that, can we? So but that seems to be what these. I think certainly we're at the thin end of the wedge now, where mm. they're just saying, you know, they're not saying set him free. They're saying, you know, he shouldn't be given the the capital punishment or you know his sentence should be reduced so neuroscience is starting to blur the lines between responsibility and culpability you know it's sort of they might be responsible but can you condemn them as criminal well i don't know how to answer that no no i don't think anybody does but i think what we have to do in the end is say if you can't act within you know the norms of our society then we are going to take measures to stop you basically taking the piss I'd like to see that written down in the statutes. <laughs> Just, guys, don't take the piss. Um, it's sort of like that, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's it like is. you've, got, you, you've got a certain amount Common of licence, but you're not to go too far. Yeah. And, and I mean, what, what we're talking about to some, to some extent is, 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 is free will, isn't it? Which is the, the heart of the film, yeah. um, Minority Report. It's free will versus determinism. Yeah. So our last question, the third question, quite a big one. What is free will and do we have it? Michael Brooks. 
Michael, you don't look like you want to answer. So uh, we asked Professor Stephen and first philosopher and author Julian Baggini. I'll tell you what people often think free will is, at least when they're talking about it in the context of you know, the way the idea has emerged in, in Western thinking. They think free will is some kind of capacity that we have to do, in a sense, kind of anything, really. It's the idea that if we have free will, anything we do, we could have done something else had we chosen. So it, it's a kind of capacity to act which is unconstrained by nature, nurture, it just comes from you within. Now, if you think about that for a while, I think it soon becomes evident that that's kind of a bit odd, actually. Why would anyone think we should have that capacity? It would be good if we did. Because what would it mean to make a choice that was completely unconstrained by your past and your background and your society? Well, it would seem to be to sort of generate a decision out of nothing. It would be a meaningless choice. It's hard to know quite how to get in touch with the idea of free will. It's somehow an idea which has floated through Western philosophy for a long time, and to a neuroscientist or to any sort of scientist it doesn't make much sense. But the idea somehow in it is that you are, quotes, free, your mind is free to make decisions, to do what you want to do, to lift your arm up above your head, um, to decide what you're going to have for dinner, or all the rest of it. Now, manifestly, you're not entirely free to do all of those things. Um, I'm not free, for example, to run for a bus because I had some surgery recently which has damaged my knees and I can't run. I'm biologically constrained. I'm not free to think that I can live forever. Well, I can think I can live forever. I'm not free to live forever. I'm not free to fly by flapping my hands around. So free will in that sense is a, a nonsense. You're constrained either by social constraints or you're constrained by biological constraints or both. I suppose the point is that there are lots of constraints, some of them which are unbreakable and some of which you can probably break some of the time. But it is, it is quite tricky to get a handle on like a definition of, of free will, though, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And you're in a position where you just want to say, well, I want to feel that I'm making the decision. Hmm. But then you look inside your head and you think, well, there's just this lump of jelly in there. And there's lots of, electrical, yourself, <laughs> lots of electrical signals going around. And there's none of them are somehow, you know, the special bit of you that tells everything else what to do. You know, there, there was this amazing experiment in the 90s where a surgeon was treating people with epilepsy, attached electrodes to their brain and sort of stimulated bits of the brain to see which bits he needed to cut out. And uh, lots of the patients, to his complete surprise, lots of the patients said things like, oh, that made me really want to lift my leg or, you know, maybe want to put my arm up in the air. And then he turned up the electricity, turned up the voltage, and their arms just shot up in the air. And so there's no distinction between that feeling of, I want to do something, you know, which is what we call free will. It's like, I'm making a decision. And just an electrical current that's flowing in your brain. And it gives you the impression that you're choosing to do something, when actually it's entirely involuntary. But is it entirely involuntary? Because in that example, he's providing the same sort of stimulus to create the effect but in my day-to-day -day life, that isn't happening. No, but there are electrical signals going yeah. around in your brain that give you the urge to do something. You just think somehow they come from you. But am I not processing information around me and then that is triggering 
those yeah. electrical impulses but, to then but make but all that happen. information processing is is basically your long term planning for your survival in this world you know and comfort and you know food and and health and sex and everything else all those basic primal desires and humans have the ability to plan so far in advance and to be so subtle in the way that they manipulate their environment manipulate people around them make things happen for them that it feels like we're actually you know making decisions whereas i think you could argue that we're not really making decisions we're just an organism that is has a very long-term survival plan the precogs can see a murder four days out why the late call we call it a red ball with crimes of passion there's no premeditation so they show up late most of our scrambles are flash events like this one we rarely see anything with premeditation anymore People have gotten the message. Uh-huh. If we look at the like the nature of the universe, what does that tell us about free will, if if anything? So it's interesting because you can go to like these huge, you know, high stakes physics experiments that are done in quantum mechanics, right? And they basically show this thing called spooky action at a distance, quantum entanglement. And in these experiments, there are atoms. You can place them so far apart they can't possibly communicate with each other, or photons of light. And you do something to one and it affects the properties of the other. And the only explanation that you can come up with is either there is some kind of hidden link to the universe that we don't know anything about, something beyond normal space and time, Mm -hmm. or that the experimenters themselves, when they're choosing exactly what experiment to do, don't have free will. So there is a school of, of thought in physics that says these experiments actually show that humans don't have free will and they're being controlled by something almost divine, huge presence in the universe. And we're just cosmic puppets doing the bidding of this super being. It's called super determinism, that the universe has predetermined absolutely everything that goes on. Do you buy that? No. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> it's just so far beyond what I can deal with. Mm. I'm okay with free will being an illusion i understand that but i don't live like free will is an illusion and and so what kind of experiments are neuroscientists doing then that that demonstrate that free will doesn't exist so they're asking people to perform a certain action and it's quite simple and there's a few you know sort of wrinkles in the experiment but it's like lift a finger whenever you feel like it just do it you know Mm -hmm. and they can probe the brain to see when the brain starts to move towards that action Mm -hmm. And they asked people to look at a clock and remember when it was they decided to make that movement. And then, of course, in a fraction of a second later, the movement happened. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that up to seven seconds before, you can read in the brain exactly what time they're going to make that decision. That doesn't necessarily mean I haven't got free will. That just means I'm not aware of my own thoughts or it's happening at a well, subconscious level. But that's the it? same thing, isn't it? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. if you're not aware, if I can tell you what decision you're going to make because I can read it out in your brain, then you haven't made that decision. Well, hang on, what Because it's already there. Your brain has made the decision and then told you... Yeah, but my you. brain is me. But that's the point, isn't it? It's, so, so there's no free will there. So this whole consciousness idea is an illusion that your brain creates for you to give you the sense of agency. But what about the, the, the subconscious? Like, is, that, is that not an, an accepted... You're definitely I... not in control of that. You know, that might influence decisions or things that go on in your brain. But the conscious decisions that you make are actually happening well before you're aware of them. Hmm. You are a robot. It's depressing, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it is. But, you know, just forget it. It's fine, move on. Yeah, I suppose so. (laughs) Great. great. Carry on (laughs) pretending that your life is under your control. Hmm. Well, I'm getting myself in the right pickle here. (laughs) I don't like it. (laughs) You're welcome. So, does it matter whether we believe in, in free will or not? Is, uh, Is the question that we asked Professor Azim Sharif from the University of Oregon. So what we've seen is that when people 
have their belief in free will diminished, people do seem to change their behavior and people do seem to hold others responsible for their behavior in a different way. In particular, if they have less belief in free will, they're going to be less morally accusatory of other people. They're going to hold people less ultimately morally responsible for their actions. Wait a minute, the big cat's back. What do you guys think? A drunk maybe can't wake up? Yeah, some guy who doesn't want to get red. Folks, please, quiet. Close your doors, come back inside. reason for that is because a lot of the justice system we have and really our moral judgments of other people are based on the question of could people have acted otherwise in the situation where they committed the particular transgression that they did. If they couldn't have acted otherwise, then what is it that we're actually punishing them for? Uh, if they're acting like any other object in the natural world, which doesn't have free will, say a, a hailstorm or a virus. We don't seek out to punish a hailstorm or a virus for any of the quote-unquote transgressions that they've incurred on us because it doesn't make any sense to hold them morally responsible for their behavior. So the idea of free will and moral responsibility are intertwined and people's beliefs about free will are very much going to have major consequences for their attitudes about moral responsibility. So if you recognize that if you don't believe that free will exists, that you're going to hold other people less morally responsible, you're going to recognize that other people will hold you less morally responsible yourself, and you'll realize that you can get away with actions that you otherwise would be blamed for. So research has shown that when people's belief in free will is diminished, they're more likely to cheat, they're more likely to steal, they're more likely to lie, uh, they're more likely to engage in, in a lot of these unethical behaviors that we're otherwise restraining ourselves from engaging in. There are studies on this that show that if you tell kids who are about to do a maths test that they have no free will, that they have no kind of moral responsibility, they're far more likely to cheat given the chance. Hmm. And, and people are nastier to each other as well. There's a thing called the hot sauce test where you have a control group who read like lots of nice statements about you know, ideals and you know, human society and what a wonderful thing it is. And then the other group read just this thing about you, know, you don't have free will, you're not in control, you are a robot. And, uh, and then they're asked to sort of season a sauce for, for a stranger who they know doesn't like hot food. And, they, <laughs> and the, people, the people who just read the thing about the, being robots, they just put twice as much hot sauce in. <laughs> so it's, sort of, it's the worst part of us that comes out when we learn this stuff about not having free will. Or at least it's quite depressing, the idea that we don't have free will. And you might feel a bit sort of agitated or angry and therefore want to take out your anger on some poor unsuspecting person's taste buds. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Yeah, you just you just massively pissed off. Yeah, you just pissed off. So you lash out. Yeah. With that... lashings of Tabasco. Yeah. I think <laughs> I, I think that would be my reaction. It's not necessarily I'm thinking, well, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. It feels a bit more active that. Oh, right. To me. Oh. It feels like damn it. I wanted to have free will have that see for me i when i when i sort of come across this and you know and faced with the idea that i don't have free will 
I quite like it. I don't really have a problem with it. It doesn't make me angry. It sort of makes me think, oh, right, okay, fair Takes enough. the pressure off. Yeah, it kind of does, really. It's like, I'm, you know... Just coast. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's, um, let's review our three questions, as always. So the first question was, can we predict a criminal? And the answer is no, but we can say whether someone is more likely to yeah. engage in criminality according to their genetics and certain sort of aspects of their life and environment it's definitely not taking us by surprise is it we can mm. prepare ourselves you can't get 100 percent like the precogs but we're moving towards it yeah the second question was if we could pre-predict and therefore pre-convict a crime should we Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think I changed my mind halfway through this discussion. Um, um, I'm pretty sure I've changed back. No, I don't think we should. I don't like it, but but it would lead it, to a better all, society. Yeah, like it, it all. It depends on it entirely depends on how accurately you could make these predictions. If you felt like you were 100 percent confident, which is pr- very unlikely, then then yeah. But this is the whole point of the movie the whole point it? of the film yeah. <laughs> it's like they're not 100% and they're yes. trying to hide it yeah but if they were 100% yeah then but they've got precogs and they're still not 100% so in that case the answer is no we shouldn't because we don't think we'll ever be 100% certain. yes okay fine the third question the one that's really got my head in a spin <laughs> uh, what is free will and do we have it and you're telling me don't know and no don't know and no hmm. whatever it is we don't have it it's really hit me hard this <laughs> don't run everybody runs Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me Rick Edwards and Dr Michael Brooks the producers were Hannah Walker-Brown and Max Sanderson the researcher was Cormac McAuliffe and this episode featured Professor Jim Fallon Dr Kyle Triber Professor Richard Burke Professor Stephen Rose, Julian Bagini, and Professor Azim Sharif. 